0: Eanes is proud to present the WHS Healthy Shaps Speaker Series. This week, Austin Anxiety and OCD specialist from www.austinanxiety.com shares anxiety, when does it become a problem, and how to support your anxious team.
1: Well, thank you all for coming. My name is Lauren Garfield. I'm a licensed marriage
0: and family therapist. I'm Carissa. I'm a licensed psychologist and licensed specialist in school psychology.
1: We both practice at Austin Anxiety and OCD. Specialist which has offices in Westlake just up on 360 and then also in Round Rock as well. And we both of us work primarily with kids and teenagers and families and parents. And we really feel um, passionately about parents because you have such an integral role in your kids' lives, whether they want you to know that or not, and whether <laughs> they agree with that or not. You're so important. I think both of us, our experience um, clinically has been we can work very effectively one-on-one with a teenager. But most people, most kids, most youth go home and they don't go like, all right, guys, like, let's make some changes. I'm ready. i got got like, my goals. I'm going to meet every one of them. Or I'm going to start setting boundaries over here. No, they need additional support from the wonderful adults in their lives that, are, that know them well and know how to help. But sometimes it's also really hard to know how to help your kids. So we're going to try to shed some light on that.
0: Okay, so before we get into what you're here to hear today, we're going to touch on this important note because this is something that's an ethical responsibility that we have as therapy providers. So we are therapy providers, but what we're wanting to say first and foremost is we're not providing that today, right? We're not providing treatment or intervention today, that our presentation is for educational purposes. um, And in that sense, we wouldn't intend for anything that we're saying to take place of something that you're um, receiving as sort of guidance for your teen or yourself in terms of a mental health professional you might be already working with, someone who really knows your family and knows your teen's individualized needs because one of the things we focus on first and foremost when we have our patients is developing a therapeutic relationship and really understanding the individualized needs of the teen and then tailoring our treatment to that. So this is educational in nature and that's just something we have an ethical responsibility to talk about. So we'll go ahead and get started.
1: So, oh, yes, we're, we are therapists, but not your therapists. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we're unable to give personalized advice, um, so just keep that in mind. So, you know, I whenever I give a talk, whether it's on anxiety or stress or screen time in social media, I always like to talk a little bit about the lens that we're looking through, which is to keep in mind where adolescents are developmentally. So, the developmental tasks of adolescents are primarily around identity building. Um, your teens are trying out kind of different ways of being in the world, whether that's how the clothes that they wear, the music that they listen to, the peers that they interact with, kind of the personas that they put on. Am I gonna be like really extroverted today? Am I gonna be like really like oppositional today? <laughs> um, and they're trying out different things to really form who they are also separately from their families. They're starting to individuate from you, which is so hard I know, and um, trying to figure out like, who am I in the world? And so peer relationships become really important. Um, Their work, which is school, becomes increasingly stressful because the, not only is school way more stressful than it ever has been before, but um, also who they are as a student is part of their identity more so than it was, and who they're going to be as an adult as they go into college, more so than it was in elementary school for most. Um, They also are wanting to fit in and be liked um, and have more independence and responsibilities, whether they want it or not. There's usually some ambivalence about that, like I want certain responsibilities and independence, but not the tough ones. (laughs) Um, They're planning for the future and assessing and building their own values. And so a lot of this plays out Um, this is why your teenagers don't like you. (laughs) Because they're really pushing against you to see, like, who am I separate from you? Um, And they also have to make a lot of really important decisions and don't always have the skills to make those decisions yet. And that includes with things that are more stressful and more anxiety-provoking and not having the skills to make the decisions rationally or how we would in in a more mature way, can cause some additional anxiety. And so to think of how stress and anxiety is kind of um, interplaying with the skills that they have is a good lens to look through and keep in mind. Um, I think also, right now, our teenagers have greater demands on them, and their mistakes matter more. Part of adolescence is making mistakes. And I'll give you kind of two contrasting examples. So, I really enjoy embarrassing myself in front of groups of people, especially on video. But when I I was in middle school, um, kind of late middle school, I had a crush on a boy, and he had, like, the most amazing eyebrows ever. (laughs) And I decided, in my head, which this is going to make no sense, I know, I really do, (laughs) that if I wrote a note and said like, oh, you're you're so cute, I wanna like hang out with you at lunch and you can be boyfriend and girlfriend and signed it a different name. It was like the original catfisher. <laughs> and like gave it to him, then he would read that and be like, I don't wanna date that girl. I wanna date Lauren and like stand up in the middle of class and declare his love for me. This did not go that way. <laughs> I don't know if you could anticipate that. I couldn't when I was 12 or 13. And I had to make that mistake. I mean, if but it had low consequences. In the late '90s, I this wasn't online. It wasn't on Snapchat. It was just between like a couple of friends and him. And then I got in trouble for passing a note. But then, it, <laughs> but then it kind of went away. Um, a contrasting example is a friend of mine's teenager was. In a, she was struggling with some depression and anxiety, and she joined a journalism class, um, which was really helping boost her confidence. She felt like she was, like, had a leadership role in it, and she was really enjoying it, and it was really helping her to feel successful and kind of form that identity of who I am, and I'm really good at something, and then my mood improves. But she, in her Finsta, which is like the fake Instagram account, which is usually for like the private, and you're like, really good friends, By the way, you know they have multiples, right? (laughs) And you get access to one of them, maybe. Um, She wrote some, like, mild thing about another kid in her class. Said something like, this kid was really rude to me about something. It was very mild. And got in trouble for cyberbullying and kicked out of the class. And so, which affects certainly her college applications her confidence, and her mood, and clinical presentation as well. Mm -hmm. And so very similar examples, some note-passing, some poor decision-making with different consequences. And so keep in mind, as your kids are encountering stressors with identity building and other things, that it's a lot harder right now, and we're still figuring out. I don't know what we're doing with all this technology. We're still figuring out what we're doing and how kids are learning with it. So I just, a lens to keep in mind, um, and then we'll talk a little bit about stressors. So, I'm going to have you pull out your mobile devices, and I'm going to have, let's see if I can get this to work.
2: Yep,
1: we okay. can. I'm going to take a little poll. Right, so, you guys think School is the thing that stresses your teenagers out the most, followed by friends and then identity, like who am I, followed by family and college mm-hmm. stuff, and some social media is pretty big, then relationships, and down, down low, work, money, health, other. So I did a talk to teenagers on stress management at the Round Rock Library in the spring. They have a really cool, I know it's far away, but they have a really cool series called Adulting 101, and we have people come in from the community talk about things like mental health, but also home maintenance, and nutrition, and balancing your checkbooks. So we did a talk on stress management, and those teens answered that, yes, school is indeed the most stressful, um, but friends, a lot lower than you guys thought. Family, kind of around there. They're way more concerned about money than you think that they might be not concerned about social media. Um, And identity and relationships, college stuff, work, kind of in the middle there. Um, So the perception of what's stressful can be different from parents and teens. Um, I think my interpretation of when a teen comes in and talks about what they're stressed out about or anxious about, I tend to think similar to you, like, okay, yeah, school definitely, but social media is stressful, you're talking about it, you're really worried about this thing, and they're like, no, that's like not a big deal, that's part of my life, but it's important to think of what, how you view stress versus how they view stress, and those things might be different, and they might both be accurate, because your observations might be different from what they're perceiving, but also might be very true, you know them.
0: Okay. So we're going to get into talking about when does anxiety become a problem. So I think we're establishing um, with the common stressor slides that everyone is stressed at some point or another. Everyone has anxiety. Um, and that what we're anxiety, or having anxiety about may vary, but it is a fact of life. We all have it. Um, And it actually has benefits right anxiety is our body's alarm system It's the reason that we're able to be prepared for important events It's the reason that we react when our our life might be in harm's way. So in healthy doses. It can be very Supportive Um, when it becomes a problem is when it becomes prolonged when it becomes too intense too frequent and interfering in your child's life so When it interferes in their ability to engage in their daily necessary functioning tasks for our teens most of them need to be involved in school in some way or another attending engaging there when that starts to be interfered upon by the anxiety that's your hint maybe there's a problem here Um, and then also when the anxiety starts to interfere and your teenager actually being able to go out and engage in the things they desire to be part of the things um, that they may have goals and aspirations around, but anxiety starts to interfere in that or hinder that in some way. Um, I can think of a teenager now who she loves soccer, um, absolutely talented in it, and wants to be part of her school soccer team very badly, um, but her anxiety around her performance is detrimentally hindering that right now. And so her parents aren't as concerned about this, but this is something super important to her, so it's valuable in that sense and it warrants attention. So. You're on the lookout for when it's prolonged, when it's too intense, too frequent, and when it's interfering in their ability to function with the necessary tasks of their day, as well as what's important to them. you want to add uh, to
1: that with functioning? Yes, school, definitely. Am I able to go to school? Am I able to engage in school? If you're seeing changes in grades and attention... Mm-hmm. Um, but also with friends, if there's usually a social butterfly and are suddenly withdrawing to their room and don't want to hang out with friends, that's an indicator like, hey, what's going on? I mm-hmm. want to ask some more questions. Or changes in sleeping and eating are really big, too. Yeah. So it could be functioning kind of across the board. It could be social. It mm-hmm. could be um, occupational. It could be school. It could be family functioning. Maybe um, they're, they used to, and you're looking for changes. If they've always kind of, you know, come and gone, it might not be a change, but if they used to talk to you about everything and now they're isolating, that may be something Mm to notice as a change in functioning.
0: Okay. We're going to talk a bit about these different anxiety disorders. This is not an exhaustive list of uh, all types of anxiety disorders. Um, And as you might imagine, each of these could serve, have their own presentation or several presentations to go over what all of the features are and treatment would be. But I'm gonna just give a brief description about these. So starting with specific phobia, this is actually one of, or it is the most common anxiety disorder. And I tend to feel like in my interactions, just professionally and personally, most people know something about what a phobia is. Um, So it's intense, irrational fear about a specific situation or a specific object. So you might think of common things like a phobia related to the weather or a phobia of needles or a phobia of heights. And oftentimes the fear is irrational and so intense that the person in experiencing this starts to avoid any situation that might even give them a teeny tiny bit of exposure to whatever it is that they're afraid of. Um, with generalized anxiety disorder, just as it says in its name, this is anxiety that's not prescribed to this one thing, but it's um, generalized, right? It's, this person is starting to develop excessive, intense fear and worry about a, a variety of topics, right? So stuff going on at school, their social interactions with people, their relationships, you know, work, just these are the what ifers, right? The what if this, what if that, and oh my goodness this, and oh my goodness that, and it's a tendency to um, overthink and then have a catastrophic thought in terms of what's going to happen. You know, something bad is going to happen, and then an underestimation of their ability to cope with it if it actually does happen. Um, Social anxiety disorder, um, so a lot of people start to think of shyness, um, It is shyness, but it's shyness amped up, right? So it's when um, this person starts to develop intense fear and anxiety about how other people are evaluating them in in social situations, right? So um, they might avoid those social situations altogether. I'm not gonna go to the party because I'm so worried about what everyone's gonna think about me when I get to the party, and I don't wanna talk because everyone's gonna analyze every little thing that I say, or if I blush, people, everyone's gonna notice that, and everyone's gonna think I'm ridiculous, and everyone's gonna know I'm anxious in this situation. So um, that's what social anxiety disorder would be about. In terms of selective mutism, um, you know, we do tend to see that start earlier on in the years than a teenager. Um, But I certainly work with teachers who still present with selective mutism. So this is when the anxiety is centered around talking. Um, So yes, it might be that in a social situation, I'm anxious about some sort of negative evaluation, but it's really related to the speaking component of that. So one way I distinguish between social anxiety and selective mutism is that a child with selective mutism is going to be anxious about speaking, and that might interfere in their social interactions, but they might be more willing to go socially interact in some sort of like nonverbal way, right? If it's a younger child, you'll see a child with selective mutism more inclined to go engage in nonverbal play than a child with social anxiety who just doesn't want to be in that social situation at all. Um, In terms of panic disorder, this is when you're having recurrent um, unexpected panic attacks. And so I do want to say that Having a panic attack or having panic attacks doesn't necessarily link to having panic disorder. You might have panic attacks in association with social anxiety or generalized anxiety. But when it becomes panic disorder is when your panic attacks are recurrent, unexpected, and then the person starts to develop fear and heightened anxiety about having them again. Um, maybe they start to alter their behaviors because they had a panic attack at the movie theater and they're not going to go back there again because that's a setting that got contaminated, so to speak, by having that panic attack there. They might even start to avoid um, certain activities where their physiological sensations might mimic what a panic attack feels like. So exercise, right? We exercise, we sweat, we, our heart pounds, we might be short of breath. And those things kind of feel like some of the symptoms of a panic attack, so sometimes they might start avoiding physical activity. Um, Agoraphobia, this is essentially when the anxiety starts to be related to exposure to real situations or anticipated exposure to situations where you start to feel like, I can't get out of here. If I go there, I can't get out. And what if I have a panic attack there? And that's gonna be so embarrassing. And being able to escape is what they start to feel worried about, right? They're not gonna be able to escape. So things like, I don't want to take public transportation. What if I can't get off? Um, I don't want to be in a large crowd. I'm not going to go to the concert. Um, Or even in closed spaces, too, because there's the fear of I can't escape. Um, And sometimes you'll start to see the person staying home, right? Because home is safe and going outside of the home. I don't know what kind of situation I might get into that I'm going to have a panic attack in, and then I can't get out of it. Um, And then lastly, separation anxiety disorder. Again, probably something you're gonna see more commonly in kids younger than teenagers, but it certainly still can exist for some teenagers. And this is when you have a lot of distress and anxiety about being separated or anticipating separation from your major attachment figure. So oftentimes it's the parent or some sort of primary caregiver in the, per- in the child's life. And you know they might have recurrent worries about what's gonna happen to my mom when she's away from me, and maybe something bad could happen to her, or what's going to happen to me, or I'm going to get kidnapped, or maybe they even have nightmares around um, the theme of separation.
1: So, I think one of the hardest things to know as a parent is when to intervene, and then how, We'll but like, when when is this normal stress and I'm just going to let my teenager handle it? And see what happens, and they're going to make some mistakes. Maybe, maybe they'll get through it successfully. But I'm going to allow them to do their thing. Or when do I need to step in? And so, I want to phrase, or I want to give you the question of like, who owns this particular problem? And you're going to ask yourself um, four questions, and this is for anxiety, stress, and other things as well. The first is, um, are your rights being disrespected? Um, Could anybody get hurt in this situation? Is anyone's property being threatened? So these are more kind of on the behavioral side. And most importantly, is my teen unable to take the responsibility? This is the key question. Do they have the skills or are they working on building the skills to take this particular responsibility? So the teen owns the problem if it's things like homework, um, how allowance is spent, hairstyle, clothing, um, conflict with peers, um, school stuff. Like When they when it's pretty much in their wheelhouse, they they might really struggle to do it, but they have the skills to do it. You don't have to do anything. You can be supportive. You can be like, oh, that's really hard. What are you going to do? But that's not a point where you really need to jump in. You own the problem if It's something that bothers you, but doesn't really bug them. Like if they're breaking curfew a lot of the time, or um, if they're not doing their chores, um, then those are things that you need to intervene on to kind of just work out the conflict from your side. But with anxiety disorders, you own the problem together. And you do with other things as well. You own the problem together if there are significant issues that overwhelm the skills of your child. So normal stressors, they can pretty much probably handle. And we want to allow them to make mistakes and do things themselves. If they're staying at home and avoiding public places, or if they're not going to school at all, or if they're using any substances, or um, if there's any safety issues, or they're avoiding um, things that would them heightened anxiety, that's a problem you own together, and they have a responsibility to, to do something about it because they're involved in it, but you also have the responsibility to come in and kind of like help direct towards certain interventions, whether that's therapy, whether that's working on the problem together, if that's possible. Um, that's a problem where you do need to intervene. So, I'm going to talk a little bit about some first steps to helping your teen with some anxiety. The first thing, and if you take anything away from what to do, is to validate or listen. And this doesn't mean you're saying that they're right about something or that you're agreeing with the the choice that they're making. It means that you're understanding where they're coming from. And so all of the other things we're going to tell you that might help are not going to go anywhere unless they really feel understood. And this is a lot harder than... It sounds because really understanding the perspective of your adolescent can be really difficult because you were an adolescent at one point but it's been a while and the world is different um so as you listen to them if if, you know even if they're like defensive and blocking you from listening to them you want to ask really open-ended questions you want to be very curious you don't want to make any broad assumptions don't want to start giving advice yet just Mm -hmm. like Oh, tell me more about that. Or you can make guesses if you're going to try to kind of draw something out. Like, I'm wondering if Mm -hmm. that makes you feel really worried about the test because you're worried about how you're going to be seen by the teacher or something like that. But you're going to frame it like as I'm wondering or I'm guessing, not as, oh, this is why you're feeling that way, because then they're going to be like, no, go away. I don't want to talk to you ever again. You (laughs) want to kind of bubble wrap it in a way that kind of slides in, right? And so... As they talk, or even if they don't, you really also want to ask yourself, do I really understand their concern? Because kids have legitimate concerns, and we really want to know where they're coming from. And so I always say play Columbo a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like, ask questions like, what must that be like? Like, I I have no idea. You know, and kind of make them the expert on their problem in some ways. Like, oh, like, you got in a fight with a friend today, like, What happened? Well, what do you what do you think you what were you thinking? What were you feeling? Um, What do you think is going to happen next? Just really ask a lot of questions, and then reflect back to them what they're saying and what they're feeling, summarizing so that they really feel understood. When we're anxious, we get in the state of fight or flight. We really want to soothe that part of our brain. And we do that by, or other people can help do that for us by really listening Mm -hmm. and understanding where we're coming from. And then we can move into more of the logical, like, problem-solving and decision-making. So listen, main thing. Yeah,
0: (laughs) absolutely. I'm going to talk about the modeling bullet point and the four points under that. Um, Modeling, what we're getting at here is you as parents being able to actively engage in some helpful strategies to cope with your your own anxieties and and making that known to the child to some degree. So I'm gonna explain that a little bit more after I talk about the four bullet points under modeling. Um, Again, each of these things could be in their own presentation and we could go on about all of them for hours, right? Um, And in fact, you guys had a presentation about mindfulness recently, right? So that would be a great resource, much more comprehensive than what we're going to get into today about mindfulness. And um, so I'm I'm super passionate about mindfulness personally and professionally. I think it can work wonders, but it's a journey to really get to understanding what it is and how to do that and how to integrate it into your daily life. Um, very simply put, what we're talking about with mindfulness is learning how to remain present in the present moment, paying attention to the present moment without judgment. That's the key part. Um, And then there are so many different ways to do mindfulness, just like the former um, presenter talks about in her presentation. You can do mindful eating, you can do mindful sleeping, you can do mindful breathing, mindful hearing. Um, When I have kiddos come in and teenagers come in and I'm trying to use mindfulness to support them with anxiety, oftentimes I do expose them to to the gamut of what mindfulness is, but then try to hone in on how mindfulness can be used. to to create more distance between the experience of a really uncomfortable emotion and thought and then your action about that, the meaning that you give that or don't choose to give that. Um, So being able to step back and learn how to be a neutral observer of your thoughts and your feelings and not necessarily like a reactor or a responder every single time to an intense emotion or a scary thought or worry thought. We're going to show a little clip that I hope makes this more visual for you all.
2: Imagine that you're sitting in front of a sushi train at one of those Japanese restaurants. And there are all these dishes going past on the train. And in the center, there is the chef creating all of these dishes. The chef is like your mind. And the dishes are like all of those thoughts, ideas, memories that keep cropping up, coming and going all day long. Some of the dishes on that sushi train may be very appealing. Some of the stuff on that sushi tray may be unappealing. And some of it may be neutral and take it or leave it. And it's much the same with our thoughts, memories, ideas that pop up throughout the day. Some of them are very pleasant, we really like them, we want them, we want to hold on to them. Some of them are very unpleasant, and we just want to turn away from them, get rid of them. And a lot of them are kind of neutral, they're neither positive nor negative. So all day long, the sushi chef of our mind is creating all these different dishes, and the train keeps carrying them round and round. Thoughts keep cropping up throughout the day. Now we can learn to step back and watch our thoughts coming and going in much the same way that we can step back and watch that sushi train. An unpleasant dish pops up on the train. We don't have to turn away in disgust and horror. A pleasant dish comes by. We don't have to reach over and grab it and stuff it down our mouth. And we can do the same with our own thoughts we can step back with an attitude of openness and curiosity and watch them come and stay and go in their own good
0: time. Hopefully that made it a little more visual. I know it's, it's complex. It's not, you know, it, it may seem simple, but it's really not. And so, like I said, mindfulness is a whole whole domain itself. Um, I'm going to turn to cognitive coping now. There are, again, lots of ways to do this. When I think of cognitive coping, I think of teaching my teenagers um, to become their own personal cheerleaders. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about positive affirmations and cognitive reframing or restructuring in terms of cognitive coping. So with positive affirmations, what we're getting at here is teaching your teenager how to engage in positive self-talk and, and the kind of positive self-talk that leads to self-empowerment. Um, when I do this with teens, what I start with is helping them to identify what their values are and what their goals are at this point in life, which is very interesting to do with a teenager, but it's possible and and it's really insightful, I think, for me as a provider to learn about that. Because a lot of times it's really very different from what the parents' values and goals are, but it still warrants attention and it's still deserving because that's what's important to the teenager. And then helping them create positive affirmation statements, like literally writing it out with them um, that align with those values and align with those goals, and then assign that to them as this is something you're gonna say to yourself every day. Um, So just examples could be, um, I am tolerant of uncertainty. I can tolerate uncertainty, right? Or I am now going to free myself of destructive fears and destructive um, thoughts. Those are just some examples. Um, And then in terms of cognitive reframing, um, this is a little bit, I think it's pretty different from mindfulness because mindfulness is saying, hey, let's sit back, let's become this neutral observer of our thoughts and feelings. Whereas cognitive coping or cognitive reframing is kind of getting in there and being more active and manipulative with your thoughts. So teaching the teenager how to identify when it's a worry thought, it's an unhelpful thought, it's a catastrophic thought, it's unrealistic perhaps, and then how to spin that and reframe that into something that is more realistic and hopefully even more positive. So I think of someone who has social anxiety, um, a lot of times some of the worry thoughts or unhelpful thoughts they have are what I call spotlight thoughts. They walk into a room like the cafeteria at school, and they think there's a spotlight on them. Every single person is seeing them. Every single person is noticing them blush. Um, And then that starts to engage in these thoughts like, oh, my gosh, everyone thinks I'm ridiculous. Everyone notices this, right? Um, And then helping them identify, okay, hey, in reality, when you walked into the cafeteria, maybe a couple people looked up and saw you. but. The likelihood that every single person in there turned around and looked at you is pretty slim, and in fact, most people aren't going to notice if you're blushing at all, or if they do notice, they may not even think about that, right? So, a reframe, something more realistic, something more grounded in, in, in reality. Um, with prioritizing self-care, um, it is—it's basically what it what it says it is, <laughs> but. Um, Helping your teenager understand that eventually, right now you're supporting them in their self-care to some degree, but eventually this is going to become their responsibility and it needs to be a priority just as much as other things in life, right? So you are thinking about things like sleep habits, right? Eating habits, but also helping them understand that maybe it's valuable to engage in daily relaxation. It's valuable to perhaps to engage in daily exercise. Um, How to also think of the importance of if you're someone who thrives on your on your own and having individual time, which I do, I have to have it every day. If I don't have it, it's very noticeable. Um, but letting them have that and knowing that they and how to recognize how they need that and then going and doing it, or also like engagement in pleasant activities, things that they find, um, you know, joyful, and prioritizing that on a day-to-day basis, even if it's just five minutes of, of self-care, it that's that's worthy. Um, I know it's setting boundaries. It's pretty tied to that um, how to put yourself first, how to say no to things, right? I think it's a really important skill for people to learn, not just teenagers, but us as adults too, to say no to stuff. When we know if we say yes to that, it's going to add something to the plate that makes the plate crumble, like being able to recognize that from the outset and determine that saying no is an okay thing to do. It's an okay thing to do, and you can do it politely. You can do it, um, in, or maybe figure out um, if there are other things that you're engaged in that really don't need your attention right now, and that thing could be added to the plate um, in a healthy way, but helping them navigate those situations, how to say no to you know social invites, when they really know that that night they just wanna go home and they need sleep and they want sleep, and not feeling um, unnecessarily guilty about saying no to things. So with modeling, essentially what this is, is you guys engaging in those things and then making it recognizable to your team that that's what you're doing by talking out loud in terms of what you're thinking, right? So if you um, come home one day and you've had stress and and you're maybe engaging in some worry thoughts and some catastrophic thinking, like owning that and identifying out loud that that's what's happening for you and then reframing it out loud too, right? You know, hey, I've had a really tough day, Um, I'm feeling like I need some time to myself, and that's what I'm going to go do. I'm going to take five minutes, and I'm going to go take um, a hot shower because that's what I need to do. That's like modeling, prioritizing self-care. Or, you know, Janet down the street is having this um, neighborhood party, but it's a night where, hey, we've all had a stressful week. We just need to chill out. We're going to sleep. We're going to watch movies. We're just going to relax, and it's okay. Like, Janet's going to be okay if we're not there, that kind of stuff, in terms of modeling setting boundaries.
1: I think I remember what, I, what we were talking about. Okay, good. So the cognitive coping. Let's say you have had like a stressful day, for instance, or like a coworker um, sabotaged your work or something. You can think to your, you know, you might say, "This was really hard, and mm-hmm. I really am angry about this." You're identifying the emotion, and I'm having the thought, which is mindfulness, right? You're observing a thought. I'm having the thought that. Work is never going to be okay. Everyone's going to think poorly of me. My coworker ruined this. This is the worst thing that could ever happen. And I'm noticing that those thoughts aren't necessarily true. So instead, I'm going to try to really just narrate your own thought process. Instead, I'm going to really think, okay, well, this was an unfortunate situation. I wish this hadn't happened. I am feeling angry. But I don't think it's the worst thing that could ever happen. And I can probably figure out some way of problem solving around this and then resolving it with my coworker. So you're kind of going through how you're changing and restructuring yeah. your own thoughts that make it more that make them more realistic as opposed to kind of this catastrophizing mm-hmm. um, thought process that would be initially. So you're stating the initial thought process, then stating the restructured thoughts yeah. with emotion identification and validation of your own emotions. Like, yeah. yeah, I am angry. This is yeah. really hard. And I also think it's not the worst thing, and there are some steps
0: that I can do to solve the problem. Yeah, and in her example, when you do that, you're and you do this habitually, it becomes part of your family's culture then. It's like, this is what we do. And also, it, it, it shows that it's okay to feel uncomfortable. It's okay, because you can't control what kinds of emotions you're going to have. You can't control your pop-up thoughts. You can't do that. <laughs> so what we're trying to do is say, allow them to be there, and then what your response is behaviorally to that is something you – are going to have more success in having control over. So I like how she was saying, you saying that you're angry about something is an okay thing to do because it shows that it's okay to be angry. Um, okay.
1: And then externalizing symptoms is just kind of a linguistic trick. And we use this a lot with both younger kids and teens mm-hmm. and even adults as well, where you're referring to the symptom or the feeling as something outside of that. When it's anxiety is inside of us, it's really vague and like feels icky, and we just don't know what it is, especially if it's generalized and, oh, I don't even know, <laughs> and it's hard to determine why, and I don't want to talk about it, but if we refer to it as something outside of you, so you're even just adding in the word the, the anxiety is telling you to worry about this and this and this then outside of them, and there we have a little bit more perspective and control when it's something external, okay. as opposed to something that's like me, and it's so un- difficult to understand. And so if your team comes home really anxious about something or really stressed out, you might say, oh, anxiety is really kicking your butt today. Mm-hmm. Like, the anxiety is telling you that this is the worst thing that could ever happen. The anxiety is telling you, if you don't do well on this test, you're never going to get into college, and you're going to wind up under a bridge with a pet raccoon. (laughs) (laughs) Anxiety is really being a jerk right now. So then it's something separate from them, and then it allows some additional perspective. Does that make sense?
0: Okay, and then with strength identification, um, This is where you're supporting your teen and identifying what their strengths are and then identifying ways to um, utilize those strengths on a day-to-day basis. One of the things I wanna throw in is that in that identification process of what are the strengths, um, identifying strengths that the teen actually likes, (laughs) that the teen feels good about and enjoys um, engaging in related activities with. So you can be really good at something and your parents may love that about you, but you don't like it, right? The opposite of the girl who wanted to play soccer and love soccer is the girl who's really talented at soccer, and her parents just love going to watch her, and they love talking to their friends about how, what a star their kid is, but she hates it. She doesn't want to be part of it. Maybe she liked it when she was five, but now she's 15, and other things are important, and allowing that to be, because you don't have to be in soccer to be a productive member of society, right? Um, so anyhow, but helping them identify strengths that they really like and um, that they feel good about, and then how can they use that? Because when we do things that we're good at and we do things that we like and we're good at, it really is fulfilling. Um, Think about you and what you think you're good at, and when you get a chance to really pronounce and maximize on that, you feel good. You probably have a better day than than not, right? Um, So it, it doesn't have to be like, super great involvement in something, it can be minor. So if you think of someone who has the strength of being really helpful and um, help, help making other people feel cared for, you, your mind might gravitate towards, well, wow, this team could be involved in volunteering activities, and that would be great. They would feel fulfilled, which is probably true. But maybe that plate that is full, right, if we add some volunteering, it might crumble a little bit because we just don't have time for that right now. So maybe helping them identify how in the day they could be helpful in caring towards people, right? So I'm walking down the hall, I see a teacher, he or she has their hands full of things, I'm gonna open the door for them and I'm just gonna feel good about that, right? So helping them see, I can do and utilize my strengths in, in little ways that still make me feel good and still make me feel um, like I'm helpful for that particular strength. And then um, the on the resource sheet, which I think you guys have, There is a website, via character.org, and that is um, a website that offers an assessment process to helping your teen identify strengths. But you could also help them identify strengths in terms of seeing what they think their strengths are, what you think their strengths are, what other family members think, what teachers think, what friends think, right? Those are ways to help identify. But the website, I think you might be more familiar with it than I am. So there's
1: a free assessment of strengths, basically this idea that there are these Categories and then within the categories, different strengths that each human has, and mm-hmm. if teens and adults can take this for free. And you, uh, it will rank your strengths, so you can see what your top ten strengths are. And um, you could do this together. You could have them do it. You could put it on the fridge if that was it something you do in your home. <laughs> um, the other and so and it's and it was created um, in partnership with Martin Sullivan, who's like the father of positive psychology. It's a validated measure. Um, and then also just pointing out strengths as you see them. And some teams really don't like when you do this, but do it anyway. It's okay. <laughs> like, stop it, don't talk. Um, but just like, oh, you were so helpful when you, you know, helped me bring in the groceries. Or um, you really tried so hard the other night. I saw you studying. You were really putting in a ton of effort. I'm just really kind of acknowledging the strengths. With younger kids, we say, like, catch them being good. Mm-hmm. But it's very similar with adults, or with teenagers, and we need it as adults, too. Um, with teenagers, just kind of noticing and pointing out strengths as you see them. So the, our next slide is um, about some more things that you can do, and some of which we've covered um, already. So but we'll just go through them one by one. And so I call this do's and try not to's unless you have a specific reason, because <laughs> some of the, kind of the, like, don'ts are things that we might utilize really effectively. For instance, listen, ask questions, those is a do, like, do listen. Um, the thing that I hear most from teens is, like, my parents don't understand me, which is part of being a teenager, is that you don't feel understood because you're, You don't totally understand yourself either. (laughs) But they also want to feel like you're trying and listening as best as you can. Um, But something that you might do is ignore if you have a specific reason to ignore something, like an annoying behavior, um, then you might ignore it. But if it's a valid concern or if it's just a feeling that they're having, um, try not to ignore. Like Try to engage. Try to at least say something. Try to notice. Um, providing reassurance is a funny one because for most people without it, usually if the anxiety is pretty low levels some reassurance is helpful, anxiety dissipates, we feel better. When we have a heightened amount of anxiety, we often seek reassurance repeatedly. And that reassurance ends up reinforcing the anxiety itself because then I don't learn to really deal with it and sit with that uncertainty myself and it's so counterintuitive to not give reassurance right, yes. we all want to comfort each other especially our loved ones we want to say it's going to be okay but not igno- be aware if your routine is seeking reassurance repeatedly especially about the same things then it might be like okay maybe this is part of the anxiety and maybe i need to say something like i know we've talked about this before and i know you know my answer already and i Think you totally got this. Mm-hmm. As opposed to it's going to be okay. Here's all the facts. Let's go look your symptoms up on WebMD. <laughs> Bad idea. <laughs> um, instead of providing reassurance, provide assurance that you know that they can do it and that they can tolerate the uncertainty. Right.
0: Because if one thing's for certain, there is uncertainty in life. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, and don't assume that they that if you could do something, that they can do yeah. it because you have many more skills than they do. They're learning, they're building, they're watching you, and they're figuring it out, but they can't do some stuff. Or even if you could do it when you were their age, or their peers can do it, it doesn't mean that they can't do um, We were talking about the cognitive coping. Mm-hmm. So do challenge thoughts very gently and with a lot of empathy, like, oh, this test is really, really hard. You're really worried about it. There's your empathy. There's your validation. Like, how on a scale of 1 to 10, how hard is it? now we're kind of evaluating how big of a problem is this in relation to how big the emotion is. Um, is this, like, life-ending? Like, that might be a harder question to ask if, and a less gentle question. Um, but we want to also, like, just gently challenge thoughts as they come up. Um, and try not to push. You know, I think we fall into the trap easily of, like, well, but, like, this is just one test. It's not a big deal. Like, mm-hmm. you should just let it go. Or, like, come on, you, you just need to study more or you know, kind of really push them to come up with a more rational thought that doesn't go very well <laughs> because they don't really, because for them it feels very real, even if they know and have the insight that it's irrational. Um, do teach and model, we've talked about that, and don't take over or do nothing. So you don't want to jump in and solve all the problems for them, we want them to learn how to be adults. Um, but also, there are a lot of cases where you don't just sit back and do nothing. And Especially if you share the problem. If um, the bit, so, we all do things that enable other people's anxiety. Um, every family member does this for everyone else. Um, so, for instance, if every time um, I'm trying to think of a good example of this, I can only think of OCD examples. I think that's okay. Yeah, that's so, what's
0: coming to my mind.
1: A common like example of OCD would be if a uh, child has contamination or C.D. and washes their hands repeatedly, apparently parent might enable that behavior by providing a lot of hand soap and a lot of paper towels. And you would want to gradually back off providing that much hand soap because that's enabling the anxiety. And so um, you want to kind of pay attention to what are the things that I do? Do I drive my, if my teen is afraid of learning how to drive, do I drive them everywhere that they go? Or do they have to kind of feel a little bit of that anxiety or the consequence of not learning to drive? If um, they are failing a class, Mm -hmm. do I jump in and um, get them all the study materials and
0: email the teacher?
1: (laughs) And then I'm enabling the anxiety to really, like, stay up rather than having them problem solve and work through it themselves. So you want to withdraw, usually gradually, what you are doing. And don't just withdraw support. You're not just being like, you're on your own, guys. (laughs) Um, You also wanna be really supportive and empathic, um, but also not doing behaviors that enable the anxiety itself. Um, Celebrate successes, which may look different for each person, um, depending on what they're trying to be successful at or what their skill level is at something, like if I'm horrible at math, which I am, and I get, like, a C on a test, that might be a success for me. Mm-hmm. And so we want to celebrate that. Um, and don't just dismiss success, not like, ah, oh, yeah, that's over, we're done with, woo or that wasn't good enough, or ignore it. We want to definitely celebrate. And then growth versus fixed mindset. So a growth mindset is that the effort that we put into something is what makes us successful, rather than the innate talent that we have. So you wanna say things like, you worked really hard at that, you put in a ton of effort, as opposed to, you're really good at that. You're, you're such a natural at that thing. Because if we think it's an innate talent, then um, if I get to a point where it's too hard, I'm more likely to give up because I just don't have that talent. And then help them bounce back from mistakes and build resilience. A lot of that is going back to the listening stuff, and then kind of gently moving into what are you gonna do about it? And then try not to criticize
0: as well. Okay, so our last few slides wrap up with when you might need to seek additional support outside of yourself as the parent or your family network, um, and then where to go for that. So the first slide, I'm gonna touch on teen parent and risk and safety factors that might be indication we need extra help here. Um, and technically, the risk and safety factors fall under teen factors, but I put it as its own bullet because it's so important. Um, with teen factors, I am thinking of things such as, first and foremost, if your teen comes to you and actually asks for help, actually asks for some sort of therapy or some sort of treatment, you know, that's brave and it's not common, in, me, in my experience at least, and honoring that and giving that attention with in a way that's financially and logistically feasible within your family is very important, in my opinion, to do because it's a big thing to ask for help. Our society doesn't make that easy, I think, at times. Um, And if your teenager is in a spot where they're not necessarily receiving or accepting the help that's being provided from the people around them, or they're, they're accepting and receiving of that support and help, but it doesn't seem to be doing the trick. It doesn't seem to be alleviating that interfering, um, you know, prolonged intense anxiety that still is existing, that might be an indication of it's time to think about additional support. And then also, like Lauren kind of hinted at earlier on in the slide, I mean, in the presentation, if your teenagers sleep and eating habits are significantly different than they had been prior, um, or if they stop engaging in things that they used, you know, just recently really enjoyed and loved, if they're persistently sad, persistently tearful, um, they're all irritable every day probably to some degree, but if that seems like, hey, my other friend's kids, like they're irritable too, but mine, this just seems like it's it's more. Something's off here. Listen to those things. And I'm not a parent, but I do believe a lot in a parent's instinct in terms of what's going on with your kid, and you might just know, hey, something's up, something's not right. And I think it's better to to play into that to some degree and help them navigate, is, is it really something or not, um, than to turn away and not do anything about it. Um, In terms of parent factors, um, when you as the parent feel like you've exhausted all your resources, when you're at that point where you feel like I've done all I know how to do, all I can do, um, when you're maybe you're starting to have that interfering prolonged intense anxiety too, um, when you can no longer objectively and effectively intervene in the situation, maybe you're too tied to it because it's your baby, right? This is it's it's really hard to be objective in the first place if you're the parent of a child. But when you feel exhausted, when you feel spent, um, that might be your indication. And then in terms of risk and safety factors. Um, Again, if you're seeing or you're hearing verbalizations related to your teen persistently feeling hopeless, persistently feeling helpless, anytime there's um, a hint in your mind that suicide is maybe on their brain or they're engaging in self-harm or they're contemplating engagement in self-harm, those are things to take seriously. And they may turn out to not be super, super serious. But hearing that and getting help is, is, is a safer route to go than not. Um, and with that said, I'm going to have us flip to the next Slide for where to go for additional support. And I'm gonna touch on the very first point there with immediate danger we're calling 911. I'm pretty passionate about this because since I transitioned to working in the private practice, I feel like there have been times when we have parents called our office and they're in a state of crisis or their teen is in a state of crisis, and it sounds really immediate. We're not necessarily accessible 24-7. We might, you know, who knows where we are or what we're doing, and we also, we can't, we can't get them into a hospital for you. We're not physicians. And I think that that's something that people don't quite understand. Um, and when you come to see us and things of that sort, we educate you about that. But when your teenager is suicidal, they're verbalizing an intent to harm themselves, a desire to harm themselves. When they have a plan for how they're going to do that and when they have an access or a way to access what their plan would be, that's an immediate emergency. That's a time to call 911. And even though it's obviously going to be very, um, you know, trauma-inducing for yourself to call 911 about your child, Um, just knowing that they're equipped with the skills and the resources to attend to that immediately in a way that calling a clinic office or calling a private practice or even, you know, calling Katie and Christy, it's not that we don't have the skills to assess that kind of situation, but we don't have the resources and skills to immediately jump in there and intervene 24-7 the way 911 can or a mental health officer could. Um, So with that said, I'm going to turn to like looking within the school when it's not an emergency situation for support. I think it's awesome that Westlake High has the student support counselors. I've worked in different schools. This is the first high school I've seen that has student support counselors like Katie and Christy. Um, my understanding, I know I haven't worked with you, Christy, but I've worked with Katie some. And um, these guys are great at you know, being able to identify how they can support your kid in the school, but also great at linking you to resources outside of the school if that seems warranted. So I would obviously promote going there um, within your school setting. And then in terms of therapy providers external to the school setting, um, you know, there's, there are all different kinds of therapy providers. So Lauren and I are therapy providers, but our backgrounds and our training is different. Um, so you, it's just research. Sometimes it's asking friends and family um, for if they have advice on where to go, maybe asking Katie and Christy if they have thoughts. And not being afraid to go to an appointment with someone and meet a therapist and then walk away from that saying, that's not the fit. That's not who I'm looking for. We all have our personal spends on things. We all have different approaches. And first and foremost, you're trying to find the fit, right? And then going from there. In terms of... I always often
1: feel like... You know, most of us are listed on Psychology Today yeah. in the area, and if you go to psychologytoday.com and search for therapists and go through it with your team yeah. and be like, what do we think about what this person says about mm-hmm. what they do? Our biographies. Like, yeah, and how are they presenting? Let's go to their website. Let's read uh-huh. what they've written. Let's let's see what, see what they look like so that you can make that decision yeah. together.
0: It's nice. I mean, when I'm looking for a doctor, I like to see what they're going to look like. It just gives me some sort of, no. I know what to expect when I get there. Um if medication treatment seems the route to go, or if you're interested in learning about that, um, there are psychiatrists, right? And psychiatrists are med- mental health providers who can prescribe medication. Lauren, or myself and Lauren, we cannot. Um, and you guys cannot, right? So you're looking for a physician if you're looking for someone who's gonna be able to prescribe medication for treatment for your child. Um, and psychiatrists aren't the only kinds of physicians who will prescribe mental health um, medication um you you might run into some physicians some pediatricians who will neurologists oftentimes will work with kids who have anxiety and adhd for example Um, i just personally tend to gravitate towards psychiatrists when i think of referring my kiddos my patients just because they have that specialized that i mean psychiatry is learning how to treat mental health from a medical standpoint or a medicine standpoint so i just that i like that specialty Um, and then lastly assessment services so what I'm getting at here is um, if you've, you know, maybe you've gone to a therapy provider or you've seen a psychiatrist or or the, some someone in the school like a teacher or a, a counselor is saying, hey, whatever's going on, it just seems pretty complex or we're not, we can't quite figure this out. And we maybe going and having a comprehensive assessment done where tests are being given that allow your child to be kind of compared to what's a normed population and having really um, structured, in-depth interviews and putting that all together into this holistic picture of your child could provide you some really helpful information in terms of what's going on and then how do we use this um, information to guide what their treatment plan should look like. So sometimes it's appropriate to seek those sorts of assessments through your school psychologist, um, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes that's not appropriate, and there are assessment um, services outside of the school. Usually you're going to be on the lookout for psychologist, um, a school psychologist, and sometimes even clinical psychologists do have expertise and experience in, in doing these assessments. And the last thing I'll say is it's, we're not, I'm not trying to imply that if you just go to therapy you're not going to have assessment. Part of therapy, if you're going to a good therapist, is to assess and to determine what the problem is before you start treating, right? But it not, might not necessarily look like a bunch of tests being given and interviews being done that create this, um, you know, big evaluation report of your, of your child.
1: Thank you for joining us. If you're interested in the archived video recording of this session and any corresponding handouts or resources, please visit the WHS Healthy Shaps website at healthyshaps.weebly.com.